And those guys, in a lot of cases, don't have the coping mechanisms to keep going <clears throat> when positive feedback is gone. That's, that's where you see one of those paradoxes where it's like the fat farm kid who's suffering along the whole time, just barely hanging on is used to suffering and and he's okay at it he's good at it and and they can keep going where the the star athletes the gazelles they they're they're not set up for it because they've never practiced suffering they've never practiced failing and coming back and doing it again welcome to the forging metal podcast my name is ron duran jr and i will be your blacksmith as we explore the world of adversity and doing hard things come inside and grab your hammer The fire is hot and ready. Let's get to work. The forge is now open. Today, we have Craig Weller and Jonathan Pope joining us in the forge. They are co-founders of the company Building the Elite, which focuses on training special forces candidates to get through the demanding selection process. They also work with first responders and civilians. The skills they teach and coach are for everyone pursuing a challenging path in life. I personally find their tactics to be very helpful for my endurance sports pursuits, as well as leadership and personal development. I know you're going to enjoy this conversation, so let's get to it. Gentlemen, welcome to The Forge. Thank you for spending some time with us today. Yeah, thanks for having us. I know you're both very busy, and I, I can only assume there's a lot of exciting stuff going on at your company, Building the Elite. And so I'm pretty jazzed to talk with you guys. I've followed you on Instagram for a while now. And I have to say, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm a little bit picky, but it takes a lot to impress me. And when I, when I read your, your posts, I'm pretty impressed. Uh, I've learned from your posts quite a bit. So I would say to everybody that's listening, I know you're going to like this podcast. I would say go out and follow these guys on Instagram because they keep writing these posts that there's good value in each one of them. I like the way you, that, that's what you're doing. You're providing some value in each one. You can learn something from each post. So that's that's how I found you guys. And then I found out that, hey, oh, by the way, you're you're local. You're here in, in Colorado. So I thought, all right, this is pretty cool. So let's start with this idea. What do you guys do? What's the name of your company? What do you guys do? What is your what is your niche? So our, our company is called Building the Elite. That started with a textbook that John and I wrote on training special operators. And primarily, we train people to prepare them for their selection courses. So if someone's going to go be a Green Beret or a Navy SEAL or British SAS, they go through some really difficult training that has a really high attrition rate. Or Most of the people who start that training won't finish it. And even the ones who finish it are sometimes not selected. And we've over the years, we started doing this in about 2010. We've developed a pretty good system for training people for that process. And uh, we published a book on doing that by now, three years ago, something like that. And we've built a company around doing that, coaching other people, teaching other people how to coach people and doing some consulting and stuff. And, and that's what we do. We train people to be special operators. Outstanding. And and we talked about this be, before we get started, that this is a pretty, I mean, what, what, you know, whatever pronunciation you want to say, it's a niche market or a niche market. Um, that's, you know, that's got to be a small population. How does that work out? I mean, that's a small sandbox. How does that work out for you guys? Is there plenty of people coming to you and say, hey, I, I would assume that we need yeah. your help? Yeah, it's, it's definitely like a niche market, but 
it's a global market as well. Like obviously we're not working with like Russia or China or anything, but it's the problem is actually scalability. It's it's not a lack of people. It's it's the ability to process or handle as many as we can while still providing a good service because it's a fairly high touch process. It's you can't just send somebody a PDF and they're on their way and they're good to go. Like there's there's a lot of individualization that comes into it. So it's it's there's enough of a market for us to to have a, a full business with it at least across the U.S. alone there are way more special operations units than you would think and then globally they're everywhere so it it's a surprisingly big audience that surprises me right there I never thought about the idea of it being global you know I just, I was just thinking the United States and yeah wow that so that opens up a, a whole new market well good. You know, you guys have found that thing that, you know, as they say, you have your devoted followers. So what is, you know, let me, this is always a fascinating thing to me and and neither one of you can answer this, but maybe this is too hard of a question, but why is it, you know, I've, I've interviewed quite a few Navy SEALs. I don't know if I've, I had any other special forces, but most of them are Navy SEALs and they'll often say, you know, it doesn't matter what kind of physical shape you're in, whether you're going to get through. So, you know, the Olympic athletes, it's very famous, you know, people that, that have the, the physical fitness of an Olympic athlete and they fail. What is going on there? Why is it? And I know that that's a that's a probably a big question, but what's going on there that causes people to fail in these in these very tough situations? And that's I mean, that's why we wrote this giant book, because you can you can get someone good at running or swimming with a lot fewer pages. But if you look at when people are coming into these processes, if they're in the top or in these courses, if they're in the top 10 percent of their course physically, their odds of success are about one in three. So physicality is not on its own that predictive of what gets somebody through one of these courses. And the rest of the factors are psychological and mental or emotional and mental. If you look at, say, BUDS as an example, if you look at their stats, they have a really high washout rate, maybe depends on the year, but about 80%, 75 to 80% won't make it through from those who start the first day. But if you break down what causes them to not make it it's not actually performance failures that often and it's not injuries so people aren't being physically broken and it's usually not that they're physically incapable of continuing or hitting the performance standard because they through the pipeline as they go through their prep courses they do this other stuff they're pre-screened anyway so they have to meet minimal physical standards everyone is kind of physically there has the physical potential to to get where they need to be it's that people break mentally from the stress of it and there are a whole bunch of different ways that they induce that stress but they're they're getting to find what's in inside someone's head. They're not just like breaking their knees or tearing ligaments. The thing that's getting people to fail or to not make it is is psychological. And it's a lot with ambiguity is is a huge thing that people struggle with where you have no idea what's coming next and the goalpost is constantly moving and you can never really win the game. You you at best play for a tie. But even if you finish first in the run, you're the fastest swimmer there is, the very next event, you're gonna get beaten again anyway. And it doesn't matter how good you were. There's a constant negative feedback loop. No one's ever going to tell you that you're great, that you're good at what you did. And they'll, they'll create situations in which you start to think that maybe the instructors definitely don't want you to be there. Probably everyone else there, the other students think that you're terrible. They'll, they'll 
create this environment where the only voice left telling you that you should be there and that you should keep going is the one in your own head. And they, that's a very specific, well-designed process so that they're selecting for specific psychological characteristics, like an internal locus of control, high conscientiousness, low neuroticism. There's, there's a pretty clear profile. And the people who have all of those things just happen to also be good at running and swimming or rucking or whatever. Like you have to have the whole picture of the physicality side of it, but then you have to have these mental and emotional skills at the same time. And people in general are usually not that prepared for the mental and emotional side of it. And in some cases, the really good athletes are specifically unprepared because they're used to positive feedback and they're used to being good at what they do. They're used to like winning the race or whatever, and then getting accolades and being proud of it. And they're, they're really unprepared for what happens when you can't push up your way out of the situation or you can't physically perform your way out of the situation. And those guys in a lot of cases don't have the coping mechanisms to keep going <clears throat> when positive feedback is gone. That's that's where you see one of those paradoxes where it's like the fat farm kid who's suffering along the whole time, just barely hanging on, is used to suffering and, and he's okay at it. He's good at it and, and they can keep going where the, the star athletes, the gazelles, they, they're, they're not set up for it because they've never practiced suffering. They've never practiced failing and coming back and doing it again. Wow, this is good stuff. I hear growth mindset and fixed mindset in there, right? The fixed mindset is I've had so much success in my life that I don't know what to do when I don't have that success. And, and you know, that's my moment to say I'm not playing the game anymore, right? When you look at a, a client, can you kind of size them up and say, I think this person's going to have success or this one's not? Is, is, it, is it pretty clear at the beginning? Yeah, when we work with our clients, we screen them intentionally. When we initially started, we were very difficult to find. We had a small little website. We didn't publish a lot. And so people had to go out of their way to find us. That usually meant that they had high conscientiousness because they didn't think they had all the answers and they were looking for guidance to become better. And even if they were physically capable, that wasn't good enough for them. They wanted to continue to grow. Uh, and then we make them fill out a very, very long and annoying application. So we make them apply. We don't just say, hey, pay the money and you get to work with us. And most of that application, we don't read. I just want to see if they're going to fill out 20 to 30 pages of stuff. We read a couple of specific questions and those kind of hone in on some of the things that we talked about, like growth mindset and the conscientiousness, just a lot of being self-aware of what their particular strengths and weaknesses are, whether or not they hone in specifically only on physical strengths and weaknesses or whether they're able to think about the bigger picture and have taken the time to consider that this is going to be very psychologically and emotionally stressful as well and whether or not they have vulnerabilities there. And oftentimes those things tell us a lot about who that person is, you know, how thorough their application is, tells us a lot whether or not they took the time to really think about what they were going to say to us and, and kind of how much work they were willing to do. And that tells you a lot, again, so that we, we kind of select for a lot of those things from the get-go. And then once we start working with people, a big part of our coaching process is having them provide feedback to us on their experience. And that provides a lot of guidance pretty quickly 
on what their particular weaknesses are, where they might have blind spots. And then we slowly move them. We intentionally do things with our training process to kind of, to kind of highlight those things and see what their particular vulnerabilities might be. Oh, I like a lot of this. You know, you mentioned self-awareness. How do we know, you know, either one of you, if you want to weigh in, how do we, how do we get to know ourselves? How do we know our strengths and weaknesses? Any, I mean, conscientiousness might be, be maybe a starting point, but what would be your advice? Let's say the average person out there says, I want to get to know what am I good at? What am I not good at? And that, that may seem like a simple question, but I find that most people are not real clear on that. So any thoughts on how we get better at that? Yeah, so we intentionally practice this quite a bit. If you, you know, meditation is very, very popular right now. And the whole concept behind most meditation is a couple of things. One, it's autonomic regulation. I uh, see so you combining nice, slow, deep breathing in a very relaxing environment that increases your parasympathetic or the rest and relax part of your brain, which helps people improve their cognitive focus, the amount of energy they have available to that part of their brain reduces their systemic stress. Most people throughout their day are going from one slightly challenging thing to another and stress is cumulative. And so if you don't have these little breaks then stress accumulates and you start to lose access to the thinky part of your brain, you accumulate cortisol throughout the day. And then that means you're just responding to stimulus. You're no longer thinking. And that kind of brings us back to being self-aware. So being able to control your autonomic nervous system has a lot to do with just giving yourself the ability to pay attention to what's happening in your mind. And then you have to practice the skill, which is kind of the second part of meditation, which is mindfulness. And that's just simply being aware or skillfully using your attention to understand what's happening in your own head. So if you think of attention, it's like a spotlight. Like if I fixate on sensation in my body, then you can become hyper aware of those things. If you fixate on what's happening in your head, you can start to become more aware of what your thoughts are. So shifting your attention to different stimuli is a skill and it takes specific practice. And so we tend to initially start with just having people focus on just literally paying attention to what is happening in their mind when they're doing different, different things. It, and a lot of times this comes to light with the consistency on things. So something as simple as people aren't consistent with, say, their warm-ups or the mobility and breathing work we have them do highlights that they are uncomfortable in their own head when things are quote unquote boring. But if they were really paying attention to the thoughts that were going through their head in that moment and their ability to kind of skillfully move their attention from one place to another, it wouldn't feel so boring in that moment. So uh, again, we kind of start off from the get-go. We just have people start to pay attention to what is happening in their head. And then we usually pair that with some type of activity, like breathing exercises and things like that from the get-go, because that enhances their ability to do that from the, from the start. And then you slowly have them do that in more and more challenging environments. Because as you become more and more stressed, what tends to happen is you lose access to the thinking part of your brain. And that's somewhat a good thing. Like when you go to run a mile and a half, you don't want to be in your head the whole time obsessing over whatever is coming up and sensations of pain and fatigue and whatever it may be. But you want to be in that sweet spot where you have, you can control the amount of stimulus that you're having. So when you go to run that mile and a half, you're having a nice, strong, sympathetic response. You can perform really well, but it's not so strong that you're just reacting to your environment. And that's, again, this is what happens in selection. And this is how they get people to quit is they just it's not that any one event is that particularly hard, but that you have too strong of a stress response that people aren't capable of then 
realizing that they have a strong stress response and then calming that down by controlling their breathing, controlling their thoughts, reducing the reaction to the stimulus that just occurred or whatever emotional response they're having in reaction to what just occurred. And that then it takes them a long time to recover. And then they have another heart event, another heart event. And over time, those things add up and they slowly start to lose the ability to regulate themselves. And then they're just reacting. And eventually that gets far enough along and they no longer can react well to emotional responses. And the only thing left for them is, is to quit at that point because it just seems so bad and they have no ability to kind of work their way out of that. So again, we work a lot on like think of low level stress and then we slowly add stress over time. Mm. So for anyone listening to this, kind of regardless of context, the first thing you have to do is just being aware of your thoughts, even under low stress conditions. Meditation is a really good way to do this. I think med- guided meditation is the best because it really helps direct your thoughts in the moment. And then you can progressively do this under higher levels of stress. This is good stuff. You know, as, as everybody probably knows that listens to my podcast, I do, you know, I'm an ultra runner and I've run up to 50 miles and I kind of stumbled across this because I, I studied this stuff and I, I started connecting dots and I, I've noticed when I do 50 mile runs, roughly about 35 miles in, I can't, I mean, I start to get to this mode where I, I don't want to drink, I don't want to eat. And and I can tell that the normal things that, that I normally can, you know, do start to shut down. And I started realizing, I think it was because I was getting into a sympathetic nervous system activation. And, and that's that threat mode. That's that fight or flight mode. And so my body was doing some crazy things. And so I started doing breathing exercises. When I felt, I practiced a good self-awareness that when I felt that, I don't know, that stress rising, I would just do some breathing exercises and try to get myself back into a parasympathetic nervous system state so that I could function a little bit better. So I said, I hear this. So if you're an ultra runner out there, you know, what, what Jonathan just said, I think is, is something that you should, you should experiment with. And then the other thing I like about what you just said is everybody out there, whether you're an ultra runner or, or you want to get into special forces, we all have stress, right? And start out paying attention to that and, and trying to regulate that. So again, autonomic nervous system for all of you that are listening, if you're not familiar with that term, that, that's what we're talking about here. Let's, uh, you know, recently you guys posted a, a post on Instagram about humor and, and how that can help us with essentially with stress. And I recently wrote a chapter for the first ever adventure psychology textbook. It's in editing right now, but my chapter in the book was endurance performance. And, you know, of course, there's a lot of things that go into how do we perform for long periods of time? And one of the things I came to was humor and and the effects of humor. So what, how would you guys characterize that? What's so great? I mean, outside of the the normal, I think it's intuitive to say, okay, humor is a good thing. But how does it help us when maybe we're in that, that mode of pain and suffering? It's humor is a form of emotional regulation. It's also a form of social bonding or, or social support. And so when you're in an extremely difficult situation, it's, it's basically another way of regulating your autonomic nervous system by using humor and making light of the situation. It, it helps to create what's called self-distanced perspective taking so that you can put a little bit of space between you and the situation by sort of making light of it or looking at it from a different angle, which can blunt the, that 
really harsh stress response depending on what you're doing. And that's why you'll find a lot of usually dark humor among, say, trauma medics, people who do really stressful, difficult things for a living. And there is there's a really important distinction there. And when you look at the research on humor as a coping mechanism for stressful situations, like ranging from POWs to trauma surgeons, sometimes the research is pretty mixed and humor doesn't seem that helpful. And the variable that seems to determine that is whether it's negative or positive humor. And we, when we, we run a few posts like that on Instagram talking about the value of humor, and you'll always get these guys who are like, everyone tells me that I need to just shut up or I'm just being a jerk or whatever. My humor isn't useful and I'm not allowed to make jokes anymore. And that's because you're being a jerk. So if, if your form of humor is negative, if it's critical, if it's making fun of someone else, if it's putting someone else down, or if it's critical of yourself, if you're, if you're making jokes about how much you suck or how incompetent you are, if, if it's belittling or degrading humor, then it's counterproductive and it's making things worse. But if it's a positive form of humor where it's affiliative and it's increasing the sense of cohesion among your team or the sense of belonging, if you're making light of a difficult thing, but in a positive way, like my my selection course, we went through, it was a long time ago, it was around when the time the movie Super Troopers came out. And there was a scene in there somewhere where they were shooting at each other basically and and the guys that little guy i wouldn't worry about that little guy and we used that all the time going through the course when something terrible was about to happen we'd either say little guy i wouldn't worry about that little guy or we'd say it'll work itself out as just this running joke among everyone who was left in the selection course and so it was a thing that was like an inside joke among the team and it was a way of minimizing the threat that we perceive from whatever we're about to do or whatever we were facing or dealing with. So it's it's a tool for emotional regulation or managing the intensity of a stressor, but it has to be applied in a specific way. If, if you're the guy who is using humor as a form of bullying, then it's not helpful for you or for the people you're with. So it has to be collaborative humor. Good job. Yeah, so so humor, but it's got to be very specific. It sounds like, and you know, it, it brings to mind when I was doing the research for for my chapter on this. One of the things that I've read is you know, like Spartan warriors. The ancient Spartan warriors were very well known for a laconic, what's sometimes called a laconic sense of humor. You, you know, you were talking about that that kind of that dry sense of humor. That so they would be they would be cracking jokes as they were marching into battle to kind of lighten that that mood. And I think I also read somewhere, and I, I could be wrong on this. Maybe you guys know that you can't experience pain while you're laughing, something like that. So when you start laughing, even people that are in chronic pain, they actually feel that pain go away while they're laughing. So wonderful things with humor and laughter. Yeah, yeah it mitigates it. I, I have a thing where I laugh, like either at other people's pain, which is kind of terrible, <laughs> or my own. And like when I first met my wife, at some point she was playing around and she punched me and I started laughing a little bit and she thought I was making fun of her. So she punched me harder because she wanted me to take her seriously. And she ended up basically pummeling me while I was sitting there giggling in a ball because I have this natural stress response where I laugh as a, like a way of minimizing the effects of pain. And so she had to learn that. And I, I like it works fine with soft people, with special operations guys, because they kind of all have that thing where you you sort of laugh things off. 
but I, I have to throttle that back sometimes with civilians where like the first response shouldn't be to laugh at someone when they get hit in the head by their surfboard or whatever. It should be like, Oh, are you okay? And to right, make yeah. it feel better. Were you uh, this, yeah. It's good stuff. But I think, I think for the, the, the listener out there is, is try, you know, when you're in that mode and, you know, if you're an ultra runner, you certainly know what that feels like to be in that pain and suffering mode where, where everything's negative in your head and then you're wrapped up in, all this hurts. If you can crack a joke, even with yourself and just make light of the situation, it will, at least for a moment, it will make things better. Um, yeah. Good stuff. stuff. On that, I mean, because I do a lot of ski mountaineering and the way I try, the way I implement this is oftentimes like near the very end of say a really big objective, you know, been going six, seven hours, you got this heavy pack, and I visualize somebody watching me from above and how absolutely absurd and ridiculous the thing I'm doing is. Like I specifically remember I was trying to finish getting up the top of a 14,000 foot peak and like the storm was coming in and it was just like breakable crust and then just basically like skittles underneath that. And so I was like wading up to my armpits and the only way to try to keep moving forward because you couldn't stay, stand on top of the snow was to basically swim where I was like kind of army crawling my way up the mountain. And like my hands were totally soaked and my chest was completely soaked and it was just absurd. And and I just like visualized somebody watching me. Like I like, there was like a, on the ridge line, I just like, took, I stopped for a second because I was like starting to get really frustrated with it. And I just imagine that somebody there was watching me do this and how insanely absurd it was that I was trying to do this thing. And it's like immediately reduced the stress response. And I do that pretty much anytime I'm doing endurance stuff where it's special and I'm really suffering. It just really helps put into perspective that like I'm choosing to do this. It is kind of ridiculous and funny how much I'm struggling in that moment. And it, it just, as Craig was saying, it depersonalizes it. And it's very, very useful to like breaking that, feedback loop because you can get in your own head have negative self-talk and then you start to have an emotional response that self-talk and it can break that chain and kind of pull you out of it and give you a perspective that you don't tend to have in the moment oh, i love that you know it's that that, that perspective and and what i don't know if, if jonathan explicitly said this but you're separating yourself from that emotion right when you yeah. become the objective observer that is gonna kind of take the i don't know the power away from that emotion I, I've done similar things. I've fallen down where when I'm out doing a long ultra run and just giggle my ass off of how stupid I probably looked as I fell down. So I, I get it. It's good stuff. Craig, let me let me turn the you know kind of the conversation back to you in your book. And by the way, let me I showed this earlier, but let me show again. You guys were so kind to send me this thing, and I it's a huge book. If you're watching this on YouTube, I'm showing this on, on the video. Obviously, you're seeing that, but for audio people, this is a wonderful book. I don't know, it's over 500 pages. I think it's mm. it's it's a textbook, and I'll tell you what, I'm. I'm geeking out on it as I'm reading it. So I think there's a lot of good stuff in there, not just for people that are going into special operations. But anyway, in your book, Craig, you talk about this idea, something that resonates with me that I've used before, that life is not a steady state marathon. It's a series of sprints. And you have this thing in there about a sine wave, which is something I use as well. Tell tell the listeners about this story of the sine wave and why that might be important to kind of understand. So I, 
grew up in a tiny town in South Dakota without a real swimming pool. I, I didn't really know how to swim when I left for selection. I joined the Navy. I was still in high school when I enlisted. I was, I believe, still 17 when I shipped out. And the nearest swimming pool from where I grew up that was like had lap lanes and you could learn to swim was 90 miles away. So I, I figured it would work itself out and I was going to learn to swim while I was there. And I sort of did. I learned to swim by taking the initial screen test to get into the special operations pipeline, failing the swim so fast that they'd send me to stroke development on the other side of the pool and give me a swimming lesson. And I, I passed my last try by seven seconds, I believe. I just barely squeaked through. And then from there on, I turned out to be really bad at swimming. Like I just couldn't grasp the concepts. So I got pretty good at putting a lot of effort into swimming badly. And and I just struggled in the water every day for two and a half years while I was going through. And there was a phase of that pipeline where I was kind of in a, like a holding program called the scruff program, where we just did special operations prep training stuff all day. And we screened in the new guys who were coming in and taking their screen tests and stuff. Like we did the admin paperwork and your entire day was just getting little beat downs, basically a lot of pool work. And I spent about six months doing that. And it was pretty apparent that that swimming was my weakness, that that it was what was going to get me if something got me. And then it, it was like my vulnerability. But partially because of that, I had this perspective where if I could breathe freely, if I was not in the water, I was a happy camper. And it didn't matter what I was doing. I could do burpees for hours. I do pull-ups forever. I was I was fairly solid at other things like calisthenics, beatdowns, pull-up kind of stuff. I was good. I could run as much as I needed to. Just put me in the water, and things started to get started to go sideways. And as I was leaving that program to go to the actual selection course, this EOD chief, an explosive ordnance disposal guy named Chief Ferris, pulled me into his office on maybe my last day, and he sketched out that, that sine wave, and and he was like. Look, everyone has a profile. Everyone has their strengths and their weaknesses. And as long as the average stays above this line, the strengths can balance out the weaknesses. And one of the things that really does that, and he tapped his pen on the side of his head, one of the things that really does that, that balances these things out and keeps you going in these low spots is what's in here. And and basically he was pointing out that as long as I didn't break mentally, I, I was going to be able to manage through the low spots. Like I was going to be able to pass the minimal standard I needed for swimming, but it was going to hurt a lot and I had to not break. And then I had the high spots, you know, like where I was running or doing calisthenics or something where I was okay, where I could essentially catch a break relative to other people because I was aerobically fit enough to to make it through that where those were my moments of advantage and I could recover in those moments or at least not draw the direct hatred of the instructors and, and I could take advantage of that. And I kept that concept with me as I went through and I tried to use the strengths that I had to account for the weaknesses that I had. And that's something that we do now coaching people. We create a profile. It's it's called a jagged profile where you just look at all the individual variables of a person. Like, what are they good at? What are they bad at? What are their strengths and weaknesses? And we address those. We look for limiting factors. We use their strengths to address the vulnerabilities that they have. And every person, it's like a key fitting into a lock. Every key is a little bit different. Everyone has a slightly different profile and you just need to understand what the weaknesses are, what the strengths are, and how you can make those things work together. Mm. 
I like that. You, you know, I, the message I'm taking away from this is don't let those those low points break you. You know, hang on and know that that you know we all have strengths and weaknesses. What are your thoughts? You know, one of the things that comes out a lot in in the literature is focus on your strengths. You know, that's where we should spend our energy and our time. I feel like that's a little bit short-sighted. What what either one of you, what are your thoughts on how much time should we spend on strengths? How much time should we should we make our weaknesses a strength? Or or what does that look like for you guys when you're coaching others? What do you how do you address weaknesses? Yeah, I, I think it depends on the context of the situation. So the way we think about it is we create profiles where we have minimum standards. And Craig was speaking to this before. Like he couldn't just decide to not get better at swimming or else that weakness was going to be so limiting that it didn't matter how good he was at other things, he would not be capable of doing the job that he needed to do. And so when we're working with our clients, they're always going to have things they're better at naturally than other things, but they need to be capable enough at the areas that are their weaknesses to not be the thing that's catastrophic and leads to failure. And so it doesn't matter what you, you know, you're training for or what you do in life, you know, if you have too large of a limiting factor, you could be the smartest person in the world, but if you can't interact with others, if you don't have the social skills to do that, then you're likely going to severely limit the impact that you could have and success you could have in your own life. And so that's from a high level, that's how we think of limiting factors. The thing that matters the most in any system is the thing that limits it the most. And so and, and by default, if it's limiting you, that means it's something that's important. So you just have to look at the bigger picture of what are the things that matter for your sport, for your career, whatever it is, and not just ignore those things that need to be good enough that they don't hold you back. Oh, that's perfect. That, it's similar to, it makes me feel good because it's similar to what I like. I say spend enough time on your weaknesses so that they're not a liability. Mm-hmm. And and then turn your attention to the strengths and, and that's much more fun and, and all that good stuff. But you're right. You know, sometimes people will come to me and say, well, I'm not a very good public speaker and it's a weakness for me. And I, I usually will say, well, we need to make sure that it's at least at a certain level that it's not going to hold you back. So I, I hear that exactly what you're saying there. Jonathan is that can be, I like that. I like that term, a limiting factor, depending on what your, you know, I like to use the term, your arena of choice. What is your arena, whether it's special operations or, or whatever it is that you're doing in life. Let's, let's turn our attention. You guys mentioned neuroticism, conscientiousness. I mean, this is, if you're not familiar, it's the big five personality traits. Um, by the way, reading your book, I, I didn't realize it had an acronym of OCEAN, but it's openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. And you guys have kind of pinpointed the, a mix of low neuroticism and high conscientiousness is a good mix for people trying to get through special operations selection. And I feel like this might be applicable to a lot of things in life, but why is that a good combination yeah so we can go over we'll start with the low neuroticism thing so neuroticism is essentially how emotionally stable you are so on one side it's neurotic and on the other side it's a continuum is what we call emotional stability so people who tend to be more neurotic tend to have larger emotional responses to stimulus so they feel things more intensely and they're more prone to emotional reactions and the, the important thing to note here is that the big five personality traits are fairly hardwired they can adjust and you can build 
skills to help mitigate those things, but they are somewhat who you are. A good example of this is on the ocean traits, agreeableness. I'm quite possibly the least agreeable human that there's ever been, which means I can be very difficult to be around. So I have to figure out ways to offset that because my natural response is to not agree to anything that anybody says ever, which is one of the many reasons why I never went into the military. It was not going to be a good, but on the, the, the emotional stability aspect, uh, the ner- low neuroticism, as we talked about, your emotional response to things costs you something. Now, having a higher level of neuroticism doesn't mean that you can't be successful in life. It's just in these high stress environments where you're going to have a stimulus that we're going to be in these environments where they're inherently highly stressful, that's going to more often lead to a stronger emotional response. Those emotional responses become harder and harder to regulate if you naturally are going to have stronger ones by default. That means you're using a lot of your cognitive energy, just managing your emotional response to stimuli in high-stress environments. And again, if that if you're spending a lot of energy doing that, that means you have less cognitive energy for your physical tasks, to get along with others, to manage yourself internally, to do all the things you need to do to pass one of these special operations selection courses. And then the other side of that is conscientiousness. And so this is basically how your attention to detail, your ability to realize how your actions interact with other people or impact other people. And so you always think of somebody with high conscientiousness, somebody who's squared away, who's always extremely organized. They can manage their own thoughts, their own activities. They know what they're working towards. And so clearly when you're in an environment where you don't have much positive stimulus, when people think of selection, they think of always being told what to do. Um, and while you are told what to do, you're almost never told how to do that thing. So you have to be very, very good at organizing yourself and managing yourself because they're not going to tell you how to do that thing. And so if your kit isn't squared away, if you're not able to manage yourself throughout the day when no one's looking and do all the little things, then you'll become a liability to your team, to other people there, and eventually you'll likely fail out. Now you can you know, offset this. We have a good friend that we worked with for a long time who is very, very, very low conscientious, but he's very successful in life because he's also quite possibly the nicest human being of all time. And he's like learned a lot of ways to manage himself so that he's much more capable of following through on the things that he should be doing on a day-to-day basis, managing his own kit, doing all the things that he needs to do, and he's become very successful. So, you know, when you think of being low or high on any one of these continuums, it doesn't mean that you can't be very, very successful. It just means you're going to have to build skills to offset those things. And it comes back to the the self-awareness thing that you started out asking about. Like, the important thing is for someone to just know their own tendencies, their characteristics. And then from there, they can use kind of that sideways concept and they use their strengths, like the guy John is referring to, to compensate for his weaknesses or address them. And as a short rule of thumb, you just think of it as low low, or low neuroticism and Jesus, I just lost my train of thought because I don't sleep anymore because I have a baby. But basically, they're people who can do the right thing when the right thing is hard and they do it without anxiety, without excessive anxiety. And those are the two things that you're looking for in these these courses. It's funny you say that because I I'm, I'm a high emotion guy, and I and I used to fight that, and now it's just you know of course it starts with self awareness to understand that, and, and now I try to work with it the best I can, knowing there's not a whole lot I can do about it. You know, kind of as as Jonathan was saying, the five big five personality traits are, are fairly well established. There's not a whole lot we can do to move those. So I don't know that we need to beat ourselves up for it, 
we say, okay, this is what I'm working with and how can I work best with this? So maybe I wouldn't be a good, uh, I'd probably be high in neuroticism if I, I haven't taken a big five personality test, but that's probably what I would score. This is fun. I've really enjoyed this conversation, but as always, we got to we gotta bring it to an end at some point. So before I get to our signature last question, gentlemen, I know, you know, it took me a while to get you guys booked because I, like I said at the outset, you're busy. And so what what's going on? What's exciting with, with your company? What are you guys working on? How can people reach out and work with you? Because of course they're saying these guys are pretty awesome and and we want to know more. So give us give us your pitch. Yeah, so we have a couple things in the works. We're currently working on uh, creating training programs that include not just the physical side of training, but the psychological, mental side of training that we're going to deliver. Try to do at scale. We're doing this in a variety of ways because we. We talked about this before. Everybody has a unique profile and everybody has unique limiting factors. And so whether that's physiological or psychological, emotionally, and so we can't we have to treat people like individuals. This is why massively scaled training rarely works well because you're not taking into account those individual factors. And so for us to, to deliver training at scale, we're having to develop a lot of tools and things to make that possible so that we can do that well, but also make it affordable for people because... Most people who are, you know, 18 to 30 cannot afford several hundred dollars a month and we can't scale our training and do a good job working with a lot of clients one-on-one. And the second thing that we're working on is our mental skill course, which will be specifically on the kind of mental and emotional skills and developing those over time. And that will be applicable kind of regardless of context. In terms of our training, we do work with a lot of firefighters, law enforcement, and we'll be opening more and more civilian type training pathways depending on fitness level and kind of what your goals are and what you want to train towards. That's wonderful. These are good problems to have, right? Trying to figure out how to scale and, you know, how can you take on maybe more clients? But, but I like that you're emphasizing this idea. You know, I'm, my big thing is leadership and, and I always like to say the same thing. It's gotta be individual for really to have good effect. Mm So it's not like you guys are doing good work. Keep it up. I certainly, again, will continue to follow you on, on Instagram and uh, check out what you're doing. So let's get, to the, let's get to the last question. What is your greatest failure and what did you learn from it? And again, I know it, my regular listeners say, hey, we know what you, why you do this, Ron. But if you're new to the show, it's just a normalized failure. Say, hey, we all fail. And how we interpret that failure is very important. So... What do you think, gentlemen? You want to weigh in on what was your greatest failure and what did you learn from it? I think for mine, I failed my first selection course because I couldn't swim or I sucked at swimming. So I was at that point about a year and a half maybe into the pipeline and I was two weeks away from graduating my first selection course and I failed a time swim by a minute and two seconds. And up to that point, all of the coaching that I had gotten from the people in the pipeline was to just try harder. Like I just needed to become fitter. I just needed to put out more. I just needed to try harder at swimming and that, that would be enough. And that wasn't really the case. Didn't quite get me there. And the, the two good things that came out of that were the, like the instructor cadre or the, the command staff knew that I wasn't going to quit because they'd see me there as far enough along. They, they knew what I was like. So I had the mental raw material. I just needed this skill set. 
And so instead of dropping me and just kicking me out of the pipeline, they sent my swim buddy and I, we were SWIC students, like boat guy students. They sent us to a BUDS program. So the SEAL team side of things or the SEAL selection side into a program called the Brown Shirt Rollbacks, which was a performance coaching thing where normally it was reserved for bud students who were past hell week so they knew that they had the mental raw material they weren't going to quit but they'd either gotten injured or they had a performance failure like they missed a run or a swim or something like that and it was the first place where i'd ever had real performance coaching uh so instead of some guy telling me to try harder the first day in the pool this coach watched me swim and then gave me a list of like 10 specific things that i could do better that, that I had a clear picture of and I had immediate feedback on because he would sit at the end of the pool and tap me on the top of the head when I hit the wall and tell me to change something, like bend my arm differently, roll my torso differently, turn my head to breathe differently. And I, I got better at swimming so much faster than in, in that, the next two months that I was in that program, I improved more than I had in the previous year and a half. And at the two-month mark, I still had two months more to go. I spent four months there. I retook the the swim that I'd failed in my first selection course, where I failed it by one minute, I passed it by over 10. And I slowly worked my way across the pool. They, Depending on how fast of a swimmer you were, you started in different lanes of the pool and you worked your way down, the faster swimmers on one side. And by the end of my four months there, I was toward the end of the pool, like I was one of the fastest guys there. It was because I had a way to do it better, not just try harder. And you need both. Like if, if you have a good mental model, but you're not putting in the effort, it doesn't matter. But if you're trying really hard at something that doesn't work in the first place, that doesn't matter either. And that was one of the first places where I combined those things. And the upside of my previous year and a half of trying so hard at something that I was so bad at was that I was really aerobically fit. So once I had the skill set, I, I had an engine that could keep going for a really long time. And then I had to start over. I went, finished my time in the BUDS program, went back to the SWIC program and started selection all over again and finally graduated. But that setback was actually pretty valuable in that I learned the role of skill-specific coaching rather than telling people to just try harder. And I, I gained a lot of experience that was valuable at that time. And then I used in, in the boat teams to coach people within the special operations community. It played a big role in how I coached people and how I worked from then on by looking at not just effort, but also quality. So many good lessons there. Hard work is, is necessary, but not sufficient. Uh, we need more. We got to be smart too. Great, great answer, Craig. What do, what do you got, Jonathan? Yeah, I would say my greatest failure was probably my first long-term relationship, which I managed to slowly but surely destroy. And that kind of comes down to what we talked about before. I always was willing to work very, very hard. That's actually how I, I met Craig was I was kind of interested in the psychological side of it, but more from this idea of how to be tougher and how to work harder and kind of the philosophy behind that. And that's how I met Craig. But I don't, I never had really appreciated the emotional side of things and how to just be better at managing my relationships and just being a better person to work with in general. And I ironically moved into the coaching field where you had to be really good at working with people and managing relationships. And I think throughout my first couple of years, I definitely burned in a lot of relationships on the coaching side of things. But I think ruining that relationship and having it go sideways and we've been together like seven years was a very painful experience and it really taught me that I couldn't just keep doing what I was doing and try harder I wasn't going to 
be the path forward. I had to learn how to manage myself more effectively to have better relationships that I could be more successful and get more out of everything I was doing in my life. And so that led to a lot of significant changes in my life. And it's definitely something you still have to work on. As we talked about, you know, you don't, your big five personality traits are kind of who you are. So I have to be aware of those things, but part of that is just a normal emotional maturity, but that was a very, very painful experience and taught me a lot. Thanks for joining us this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell all your friends. If you didn't, let's just forget this happened and we'll try again next week. Until then, join the revolution to forge metal and connect with us on social media.